You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. enfermé dans une chambre froide. Il vivait là. Il n'a pas été violé, c'est une certitude. Lucie ne raconte pas ce qu'elle a vécu. Pourquoi tu crois qu'on a besoin de toi Lucie, vous voulez attraper les gens qu'on fait du mal à Lucie C'est ça, Anna. Elle sait pas qui c'est. Il faisait tout noir. Elle croit qu'elle se souvient, puis des fois non. Qu'est-ce qu'elle te dit d'autre juste Elle a peur. Elle te raconte des choses Elle dit qu'il faut les attraper. Le séjour nous a échappé il y a 15 ans, n'est-ce pas Je t'ai tué Lucie n'est qu'une victime, comme toutes les autres. C'est si facile de créer une victime, mademoiselle, c'est facile. Le monde est ainsi fait qu'il n'y a plus que des victimes. Les martyrs sont très rares. Tu l'as défendu. Elle a fait du mal à moi. À moi Tu m'as jamais cru. Je pense que je suis faible comme les autres. Arrête. Lucie Tu vois, je vais m'en sortir. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Alexandra West. Hey, so nice to be back. Also with us this week is Mr. Elric Kane. Hey, good to be back. This week we are looking at the 2008 film from Pascal Logier, Martyrs. It's the story of two wacky girls who get into some wild adventures in the French countryside. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode as Martyrs is a relatively recent film compared to what we usually cover on the show. I want to encourage people to watch it if they uh, don't want anything ruined for them. Now, in actuality, Martyrs is a film about a young woman who was tortured as a child who, along with her friend Anna, exact revenge upon the people who did it, a seemingly normal family who have a torture chamber in their basement. They're members of a secret society who capture and torture young women in search of evidence of the beatification of those who are martyred. Now, Alexander, when was the first time you saw Martyrs, and what did you think? 
Um, I saw it probably around 2011 or 2012, so a good few years after it come out. I hadn't quite caught all the hype that had surrounded it, but uh, I had it thrust into my hands in a small video store here in Toronto by an employee who said, if you haven't seen this, you need to. And uh, I went home, watched it. And oddly enough, it started, uh, the outside weather was incredibly sunny when I started watching it. And by the end of the film, it was like a torrential lightning thunderstorm. And uh, I think that kind of summarized my feelings about it quite a bit. Uh, and I sat quietly by myself thinking about this film for a while. And uh, it kicked off um, a need for me to go search out more films like it. You know, I saw the first time I saw it, it was one of those films. There aren't many anymore, but there was those films you heard a little bit about, and it felt you were just slightly scared to put it on. I think before that, it might have been Cannibal Holocaust when it came. You know, when finally you could find a copy in Last House on Dead End Street, one of those movies that every what people said about it made me just a little nervous to watch it, and I don't think I've felt that you know way since. And then I remember watching it and you know thinking it was you know good and had a really memorable ending, but it didn't stick with me at the time that much. And I don't know why, because this new, new viewing, I have a totally different uh, reaction to it. But I, I started thinking about it recently, and I wonder if it was because it was right in the glut, you know, between Saw 4 and Saw 5, and all these movies that were kind of turning me off the genre in a big way. And I was kind of gravitating more towards art house and Varn films because of how repetitive they were. And, and maybe for some reason in my brain, it just kind of became one rather than becoming a film which was actually commenting on those films. So, you know, which we'll talk about. But I, I thought it was, that's the only reason I can come up with in my head that it didn't knock my socks off at the time because this viewing completely did. I saw this one in 2008 at the Toronto International Film Fest. The only thing I knew about it was that it was going to be playing the Midnight Madness screening. And I was there on a press pass. So I saw this on like a, I don't know, a Tuesday afternoon or something. And it's always interesting to see these Midnight Madness movies without the Midnight Madness crowd, with that kind of press and industry crowd, because they're cut from a completely different cloth. And <laughs> I, I saw this one and I have to say, I absolutely hated this movie the first time that I saw it because it takes these strange turns. It really did feel like it was coming from the exact same place that things like switchblade romance and frontiers and indigens and all these things. And I was just like, I am so tired of these movies. I just can't, stand seeing another one of these things and when it ended up being another one of those french extremity films i was like oh god and then the way that it it really it takes a couple interesting turns in the film and when i saw it the first time i didn't think that they were interesting i thought they were just like wow how are you trying to marry up the tones of this movie with this movie with this movie and it felt like three films that were all kind of shoved together and didn't appreciate it at all. Now, I have to say, in years hence, I have seen things like Inside and probably at least, uh, I think, uh, Ills Them, and those I've enjoyed. And then Revisiting Martyrs, I actually, I can't say I enjoyed it. This is one of those movies where you're just like, yeah, this is really enjoyable. But I appreciated it a lot more when I revisited it. And then I appreciated it even more when I saw the U.S. remake and just saw how bad it could have gotten botched up. So I do have to say that I'm grateful that we're having this discussion because I do appreciate this film a lot more than the first time when I saw it. Yeah, I mean, and that's testament to an interesting piece of work a lot of the times. 
yeah, that you can revisit something eight years later. And it's like, I had very few memories of this, even though I knew where it was going to go a lot of times. But this time I was much more better prepared for it. And I was able to take it in a lot more than I was the first time. I think I kind of just shut down like as soon as the first shotgun blast type happens i was like yeah okay this this is going to be yet another one of those movies okay fuck me <laughs> i have to ask you alexander when you saw this in 2011 2012 now had you experienced a lot of the the french extremity films as far as I can remember, the only one I had seen before was High Tension or Switchblade Romance, as it's also known. And I wasn't really a fan of that the first time I saw it, mainly because I felt like the ending was a big fuck you. And then I watched watching Martyrs. It kind of caused me to go back and think about it. And in fact, I went back to that same video store to, to return the DVD. And the same guy was working there. And he's like, oh, what did you think? And I was like, I think I loved it. I think it challenged me to bring myself into something that I hadn't done before. And I really, really appreciate it. And I think I'm going to watch it again, but uh, I need something else. I need something else. And then the same guy went, well, have you heard of inside? And I was like, no, tell me more. And he just handed me the DVD. So that kind of kicked it off from there. It's interesting because I do hear a lot of people kind of express the same sentiments you both expressed. And I think it is one of those films that it can reach you right away. It can reach you uh, after subsequent viewings or it might never reach you. And I honestly believe if someone if I was talking to someone and they said, I fucking hate martyrs, I'd say, yeah, that's totally cool. I totally get that um, because it is it's uh confrontational in a way that almost feels ambivalent to your viewing experience. It's uh, deeply indebted to the story of these two women and of the kind of things that go on that are potentially unseen in so many ways uh, in society at large. And I can see how that can be very hard and very challenging, but I think wherever I was in my life at that time, it all just kind of clicked for me in a way that I didn't fully realize at the time, but I knew that it meant something to me. Um, and so I've always kind of had a deep appreciation for it. When I saw Switchblade Romance, which to me is the funniest title ever, because I don't think there's a Switchblade or any romance that happens in the movie. But when I saw Hot Tension... There's some romance happening in that truck with, with the head. You know, there is there is romance. I'll argue with you about the Switchblade, but there is romance. Even if it's one-sided, it still counts. I was so disgusted with the protagonist of that film just because she seemed to do everything that you're not supposed to do in horror films. It was like, well, hey, I'll just hide in this bathroom and no one will ever find me here. Just like all those kind of things. Let's hide in the attic. No, in the basement. Why can't we just get in the running car? Are you crazy? Let's hide behind the chainsaws. If you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. That's what you do. At one point, I was like, I've had enough. And I have no problem when I'm at a film festival and there's hundreds of films to be watched just walking out of a movie. So I walked out of it right around the time where she is hiding in this bathroom. I was like, if she does one more stupid thing, I'm out of here. And she did. And I was. What the fuck are you going to do now? You don't drop your pistol when you bust in the window. That's your ass, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then the next day, somebody's talking about the twist that happens in, in the film. And I was like, what twist? I don't know what you're talking about. And then when they told me the twist, I was just like, man, I dodged a fucking bullet there. I am so glad. <laughs>
we could defend that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys like the twist of it? Not initially. I didn't. First viewing, I didn't. But, you know, it's it's like a lot of these films, unlike a lot of American horror films, they are, feel a little more open to interpretation. And there's a there's a shot early in the film where she's watching her from the shower on a swing, and then the next shot she's missing, and, that's, and that coincides with the exact moment that the Nahon character shows up, you know, to kill the family. And it just feels about, like, aberrant sexuality. And it's suddenly, I'm, I'm like, it's an unreliable narrator film, which there are a long history of those types of movies, and it's not just necessarily a twist anymore you go back from the start and it becomes a different kind of movie but on initial viewing definitely felt a little gypped yeah i agree with alric i I think if you go into this expecting you know a straightforward plot you're obviously going to be disappointed and i think to put that on a film i mean that's as a north american audience that's what we're so trained to do but i I think what new french extremity does to this degree is they uh, often ask a really emotional involvement and to me what's really interesting is not only do you have as elric again said it's an unreliable narrator which is one of my favorite types of stories literature and beyond uh you also have an unreliable narrator who's you know the demented part of her mind that is killing everyone it's not reconciled by the end so there's this almost beautiful part at the end where she still believes she's the hero and i I think that's incredibly interesting and fascinating and chilling and um I, i have a tremendous amount of respect for that film i don't know if lucy would be an unreliable narrator but she kind of strikes me as an unreliable character early on in the film and i guess let's get into the plot a little bit more because we pretty much open on her uh, having been apparently tortured. We see her escaping from someplace, and we don't really know the details of anything until the credits kind of start, and we get this medical film documenting the early days of her case and how the police are trying to find where she was and uh, seeing her at this orphanage and being separated from everybody. And she's the first time we see her, I have to say it kind of reminded me of that famous photograph from Vietnam where it's the, the girl running down the, the road with the napalm because Lucy, the first time we see her, she is really messed up and she is running for her life trying to get away from this place where something bad has happened. And I'm immediately taken with that. It's like, what has happened to this girl? What's going to go on? What Are they going to find whoever did this to her? Who did this to her? Why did they do this to her? And really, it's a great way to kind of thrust us into this story and make us care for this girl. And then seeing her when she's at this orphanage and just how alone she is and how she can't relate to anybody. And then she finally starts to get a friend in Anna. It's like, okay, good. I'm, I'm seeing now the story starting to develop and I'm seeing that there can be maybe a bright spot to her life, which I'm imagining at this point is pretty horrible. Yeah, it makes us feel like uh, Anna in a sense of uh, it kind of gives us a quick shortcut way to feel empathy towards this woman or this girl who we can't imagine what she's possibly gone through, just like Anna's going to. And it's a bit of a leap of faith, you know, on both ends. And also at the beginning of the film, we as an audience are privy to some kind of scene torture of young Lucy. So we know, or if we choose to believe as an audience that this is all really happening, which of course is proven to be true later on in the film, we know that this poor girl is maybe not being believed, that might be too strong a way to put it, but that her own experience of reality is being called into question. What Martyrs does quite beautifully is it posits the experience of a survivor of abuse in 
a really cinematic filmic way and uh, and it comes at it from multiple angles and i think that's what this opening sets up in a really really incredible way i, I don't know if i've ever seen a film that's actually about uh, loving someone or caring about somebody with ptsd so rather than just being a film about you know uh, ptsd it's about how do you deal with somebody who has feels that way or or has those uh, experiences I think in horror in particular, we have a really strong tradition of rape revenge films, which is a female character is raped or assaulted, oftentimes both, and she almost immediately or very slowly thereafter begins to fight back. And it's this kind of triumphant hero thing that happens, and it's posited as this great thing. And in some ways, it is great. In a lot of ways, it's super problematic. And it's a lot of things that, and it's something that a lot of feminist scholars have really tried to deconstruct in a lot of different ways and again i think what we're all kind of getting at is that martyrs does take this survivor thing and it just it, it lasts for so long it lasts for decades and once you survive something it's not like you overcome it you live with it and we're introduced rather early in these proceedings to this kind of at first she's to me anyway kind of faceless this woman who or creature i guess at this point who is uh torturing poor lucy and she you know will put a a a chair under her doorknob to try to keep this thing out but it still gets to her and beats her up and cuts her and all of these horrible things and you're wondering okay is this a real thing is this an internalized thing is this her torturing herself i mean it's kind of a nice way to keep us off balance because you might think you know which way the narrative is going to go, but then as soon as that creature shows up, it's just like, okay, well, I don't really know what's happening here, but it's nice. It throws me off balance. It feels almost, uh, it reminded me, this viewing, a little Cronenbergian. I loved, it was like an externalization of someone's pain, but it's a real thing. It feels real. I know it's in her head, but they make it feel so real and present. It's it's really a big part of, I think, what um, really makes the first act, you know, uh, kind of flow so well. Well, and at this point in the narrative, I don't know if it's, if we're talking about the supernatural yet. I mean, we, we really don't know what has happened to her before and martyrs could be i don't know a witchcraft tale so i'm just like well is this a, a real thing is this haunting her or, i mean is this a demon what is this thing when it is real i mean it is real to her and this is maybe what hauntings really are you know this might be what the supernatural really is it's a, it's a personal uh, haunting you know something because it's as visceral to her as anything in real life Laguerre sets it up really well. Because he makes these attacks real to Lucy, they're real to us, the audience. And then that moment when it switches out and the camera switches to Anna's gaze, and this is around the time when Anna begins to become the protagonist of the film, she sees it, but she's not angry. There's no kind of duplicitous thing because, or I certainly don't feel when as a viewer, it doesn't feel like there's been some kind of big, you know, high-tension-esque twist to it. It feels like this character is living in and that the effects, no matter whether they're self-inflicted or uh, from a supernatural force, are just as real and just as relevant uh, as to if they fall on either side of that option. And it's sad. And uh, unlike most films where there's a twist where you go, oh, okay, that's clever. The twist here is that, oh, that's just sad. It's it's sad because I can't connect to you because I can't see what you're experiencing. So there's, there, you know, there's a distance between them, you know, that she can't overcome at that point, which I thought was interesting. What is around this time that we switch gears and we go 15 years into the future from where we started the film? 
this is another thing that throws you off balance when you're watching this because suddenly we're with this very normal like dick and jane type family going on here like uh you know you, obviously they're speaking french so you know that they're not the the apple pie type of family but here's this great you know idyllic thing that's happening and you've got the mom and the dad and the the son and the daughter and as i'm watching this i'm just like okay is this daughter now is this Anna, all grown up. I'm not really sure what's happening with this, but again, it's nice keeping me off balance. I'm not really sure what's happening. And then the moment when the dad goes to the door and answers the doorbell, and there's someone there with a shotgun who just shotguns this guy and comes in and begins to slaughter the family. Again, it's just like, I really don't know what's happening here, but I am very invested in finding out what might be going on with this. Who is this person? Is this one of the two girls from the beginning? I'm assuming that it is, but I'm eh, guessing it's Lucy. I'm not really 100% sure, but it's it's nice that it's keeping me guessing as this thing is going on and as she's going through and, and killing everybody. Her Terminator scene. Yeah, very much. Which I mean, it feels really visceral. That's I think the big difference uh, between the, some of these uh, French films and a lot of American films is you feel the violence. You like uh, this time I had forgotten on this entire section of the movie. I mean, when I sat down and watched it, this is where my jaw kind of dropped because it just was so visceral. The only director I think kind of doing that, but in a more mainstream way, is like Fetty Alvarez, the the guy did the Evil Dead remake and um, the the newest film Don't Breathe. Uh, you know, in terms of feeling the pain that you see on screen, it, it's really something. And I, I made a note. And this is just really ridiculous. But uh, that this, I don't know if you picked up that the son who gets killed is Xavier Dallon, the director. And I, in my brain, I started thinking, oh, maybe the son is being killed like a Terminator moment because she wants to stop him from directing that Adele music video. Hello? Hello? Do you remember that one? No, I can't say I do. Because I'm going to go one step further. Because in Hello, it says hello from the other side. Martyr's Connection, perhaps what they're saying at the end of the movie. Done. Oh, wow. So anyway, oh, that's, can- that's there. <laughs> I'm Canadian, so I can't say anything bad about Xavier Dolan. Um, <laughs> but I do love in that opening sequence how like irritatingly bougie that family is. Like they're such assholes. Like they're arguing about you know what preppy school, like how much they pay in tuition for Xavier Dolan's like preppy lawyer school or whatever it is, and like they're just like bickering with each other. And I was like, oh, I hate them. And then thankfully Lucy comes along and just shoots them all. And I was like, finally, thank you. And it felt like this kind of nice, like tangential thing to like the uh, like a microscopic view of the uh, French Revolution. After she kills the family, I'm just like, how many times has she done this? Is this really the family? Are these really the people that she thinks that they are? Like once we kind of figure out that she thinks that these are the people that tortured her, I'm like, and I started to think about and and being Canadian, I'm sure you remember this, Alexandra. I was reminded of when the chicken lady visits her, the the house that she thought was hers, and she kind of goes around and and you know, oh, I, this was my bedroom, oh, yeah, and then like after she leaves, she looks across the street and sees another house. She's like, that's the house. I grew up in and I'm just like I wonder if this is time 15 that she's done this does she just go around murdering people or is this her first time doing this I strongly believe it's her first time I couldn't help think about the, the you know if she was that crazy how crazy is she first time that day yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I will say, I, I really think um, there's something in uh, the Xavier Dolan's character. It, it, the look he gives her, to me, it, there's something in that moment that felt like it uh, completely justified the whole act. I, I think he, he gives something away in his actions, almost in his giving up and the way he sits there, like he knows he's been caught out. Um, as part of something, and, it, and it's really, it's really great. Whereas I, ha- I could honestly say I have no idea if the daughter is involved and knows everything. I, I can't tell from how events play out for me personally. Well, and this is around the time that I noticed that the son was super passive about this, and the daughter actually tries to make a break for it, hides under her bed. You know, again, kind of a dumb place to hide, but I'm not going to hold that against her. And it's a great way to give us kind of a little Tony Scott moment with all of these feathers flying up when the shotgun goes off. But it was just like, okay, the the women in this family are much more active than the men in this family. Obviously, the dad you know dies right away. The mom gets a little bit more time, and the, the mom will come back a little bit later on when we, she, we think she's already dead. And that really kind of started th- me thinking about the way that women are portrayed in this film and – as it goes on, I'm sure I'll keep harping on this, but it was just like, oh, wow, women play a huge role in this movie. And I never really thought about that before. And it's kind of a nice twist on the usual thing. We can talk about the final girl kind of thing, but we don't usually have women as being more of the active protagonists or antagonists inside of a, a horror film. I don't know if I agree with that, but all right. Well, then it also started me thinking about this whole movement. And just as I think about it, I'm thinking like, okay, well, inside is all about women. And, you know, hot tension is uh, is a woman protagonist antagonist. And I'm just like, okay, I wonder if there's something to it with this, you know, French extremity movement that women play a more active role. Could be that they're just Uh, more interesting. It's just funny for me to hear that because I just always gravitate towards – films and in television and everything where the women are much more centralized kind of force within the film. So whenever I see a bunch of dudes sitting around and talking, I tend to kind of slowly check out of it. So um, welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the other side. Well, and horror and horror has always done the same. I mean, horror for the most part, and especially good, you know, good horror has usually uh, centered around that. Obviously, you know, Carol Clover's book is about that, but in a different way from this film, because uh, you know, speaking as you know, a heterosexual male, the titillation, even in a rape revenge film, plays even against your desires. You're watching something awful happen to someone, and yet you might feel some sort of arousal at the same time. It's not conscious. It's not like you want to feel that way, but the filmmakers are exploiting the fact that you do feel this way. Whereas in this film, there is never a place for that. There is never a moment, unless you're a really sick fuck, that you're feeling it that way. And I think that's that's a real clear difference between this film and those kind of movies. Eventually around here, we find who is kind of attacking her like i said she was a little tough to see in the opening but now seeing this this woman who is coming after her coming after lucy and basically retorturing lucy and it was interesting to me that it was a woman who was doing it because it could have been one of her tormentors it could have been one of her male tormentors so i was it was interesting to me to see that She's, you know, the the figure of her uh, of her torture is one of her fellow victims that she wasn't able to save, and I was like, oh, okay, well that that is interesting that 
it's uh, another woman. And of course, you know, women, uh, they, they say in this movie, you know, oh, yeah, we, we torture the females. They're, they're you know, much, uh, what was it? There's something different about them. They're much more open to change. And it was just like, okay, that, that's, that's neat as well. So it's like, you know, it kind of reminded me of Orgy of the Dead. Nobody wants to see a man dance. We just want to see these women, and we want to, you know, they're they're trying to elevate them to the status, which, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Reminds me of Flatliners a little bit. You know, remember Flatliners where you come back, that thing comes back with you, whatever your thing is, whether it's, you know, the bully is going to come back to haunt you. It feels like, you know, it's very personal what follows you back in this in Martyrs, you know, from your uh, tortured stage. And unlike Flatliners, I wasn't cheering for little Billy Mahoney to be Keith <laughs> Sutherland up, you know. Right. <laughs> How many Joel Schumacher films can we drop during a Martyrs show? This will be great. One of the problems that I had the first time that I watched this film is just – how long this sequence takes. It doesn't feel like there's a beginning, a middle, and end of this sequence when I was watching it the first time because it almost feels like once Lucy goes in and kills everyone and then she gets on the phone and calls Anna, and I'm not really sure exactly where Anna is supposed to be. It feels like she's kind of waiting for a phone call, gets the phone call, goes to Lucy, and then she begins this whole cleanup process and tries to comfort Lucy, tries to clean up the scene a little bit. And this really plays out very close to what I feel very close to real time. This sequence takes a long time, but at the same time, it's also building up a lot of tension because then we start to get some moments of uh, some good scares happening in here. We have when this vision of Lucy's comes back and attacks her again. We have when the mom wakes up and is pleading for mercy. So there are some really good moments in here. And at first I was just like, oh, these are like Blumhouse jump scares, you know, but they worked. I thought that they worked pretty well. Laguerre does a really terrific job of setting up multiple different scare points throughout that sequence. And it's not, it's, I think, especially on the initial watch, it feels quite long because, you know, you know, you've got about an hour or so left of the film at least. And where else is it going to go? And so the fact that it comes at you from a couple different angles and then the ultimate kind of movement forward in the second half of the film comes from almost none of those is really like it puts you on edge. And it also, in a really smart and simplistic way, fills out the notion of this world. Now, this world is very tiny. It is very contained. It's essentially contained within this house, uh, for argument's sake, let's say that. And there are all these little things at play within this house. And I feel like very few directors have the intelligence or the wherewithal to create that. There's a very single-mindedness that I see in a lot of contemporary film. Sometimes it really works and sometimes it doesn't. And I really appreciate the Laguerre can kind of know that for these characters, Fear can come at them from any perspective and that there are different types of fear and that there are different levels of reality in this film. And again, I think he balances them really well so that I was invested in all of them. And then the fact that none of them really kind of pay off in that bigger, grander scheme of the film doesn't mean that I feel like I wasted my time on them. So it just feels fresh and it feels unique. It feels visceral, and I think playing it out in real time is part of what throws you off guard a little. I mean, you're used to edit the way movies treat time, uh, and you're used to ellipses, but when you're stuck in the situation, and I think a few of the films, I mean, including the opening of High Tension, they stick you 
in a very uh, specific uh, space and you're and you're kind of trapped like a character to just have to experience things and i think it's really effective especially w- compared to when you look at something like a saw film where the only thing going on is you're in a trap and there's a ticking clock and that's it, it's a really different um, feeling it doesn't feel surprising in those kind of films to me well yeah and saw is constantly bending timelines and jumping from here to there and like you know cariel was oh yeah i remember one time when dot 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 and here we go off to this whole other world but yeah you do really feel stuck in here and it it, this world that we have been put into i really appreciate that it is this very cold kind of place i mean even though we had this family living in it it feels like they could have moved in and moved out within a day it doesn't feel like it's a lived in place it's a facade and it's it's the most appropriate type of thing and then to see the violence that has been done and to see the blood everywhere it's just like wow this is very effective that just to see a blood stain on a wall in this really clean house. It's just like speaks volumes as to how much violence has been done. You know, we did see some good violence, but it really says even more that there's a mess left behind. I love moments where there's like a tiny crack in the perfect frame of a fo- of a of a family portrait. But early on in the in the film, where the mother comes in and she throws the dead rat or the dead mouse right on the kitchen table, right next to her, and she's completely you know she's not at all phased by it. And the way she handles death, there's no problem with it, and it's it's all kind of disgusting. But the way it's treated, that to me, watching it again was a moment that I thought was actually really kind of revealing. Whereas first time I wouldn't have even picked up on it. This is kind of one of those moments where I was like, is this supernatural is this not supernatural i was still wondering about this this uh this other woman who keeps attacking lucy because at one point she jumps on her back and she just kind of rends the flesh on her back and i'm like i can't really see you doing that to yourself but i guess you you could if you were determined enough but i thought that it was really interesting because when we get to see the wounds later on it really reminded me and this might be me stretching a little bit too much this could be my uh, adele hello video kind of thing but i was really reminded when we see the wounds later on it almost looks like she had had wings that had been clipped and i was just like is this kind of like speaking to that angelic nature that we're gonna hear a little bit more about later on in the film yeah well you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Film is subjective. I don't know if you missed, but yeah, totally. It could be. The one odd thing to me that didn't make a whole lot of sense was that while Anna is having this whole moment of crisis, she ends up reaching out to her mother. And again, it's her mother. It's not her father. So I thought that was kind of nice keeping it with this you know, kind of uh, women-centric kind of film. And her mother, her mother's kind of a bitch, but at the same time, I was just like, I guess she's got a mother now. So I guess in those 15 years, she must've gotten adopted by somebody. Cause it, it, I was like, I accepted it at face value first. And then I, when I rewatched the film, I was like, wait, she's an orphan. How'd she get a mother? <laughs> so I guess she must've gotten adopted out at some point. And I, I'm now I'm like, well, whatever happened to Lucy in that case? Cause I'm sure she didn't get adopted again, overthinking things. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. A mystery for the ages. <laughs> it, it, it didn't take me out, but but now that you're saying it, it, it's interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's just the idea that somebody wants to reach out. It, she has one person at least to turn to in this crisis, and maybe it's a um, contrast to Lucy, uh, yes, to Lucy, who has no one but Anna 
in her life. But Anna still has one other person she can still turn to. So, uh, you know, maybe it's just setting up some of that kind of uh, what, you know, who the character support systems are. And it's interesting, too, because it's ultimately her undoing is that Anna reaches out for her mother. And then by leaving the phone off the hook, that's the way that the secret society learns that something is wrong at this house and they end up coming in. But before that, we have this whole conflict. We have the moment where Lucy really just completely loses it. And I think it's because of Anna showing doubt. At one point, Anna tries to help the woman, the mother, out of the house when the mother kind of comes back and is alive. And Lucy just goes nuts and and beats her skull in, which is a really effective moment uh, of violence there. And then she has this whole thing where she's like, you doubted me. You doubt that these are the people who tortured me. You know, I could smell this smell every day when I was being tortured, smell of these people, and you don't believe me. And I think that's the moment of her undoing when she finally lets the vision that she's had kind of be her undoing and helps her cut her veins up each arm and then smash her head into the wall until she dies. I mean, it's just, it's a really sad moment that it is really because of Anna doubting her that she finally just, Lucy finally does herself in. Yeah. I mean, she's surviving on such a tenuous link. Anyway, the only thing keeping her going is the fact that if she can get rid of this monster, you know, she can, you know, have the love of Anna, her friend. And, and, you know, when she sees the doubt in that and hasn't been able to get rid of the monster, it probably just feels too much. It's, it's not, I don't think it's as big as a whole, an entire betrayal. I think it's understandable, but I do think it's enough to, you know, make it not worth enduring anymore. And Lagier sets it up so that that's the first instance of us, the audience, truly seeing that this is within Lucy's mind. This is her form of PTSD, this extreme PTSD that she has. And so Anna, Anna's been living this for so long, and she's willing to support Lucy within it. And I think just to clarify, Lucy dies when she smashes through the window, looks back at Anna and slits her own throat. So I think that's that's a delineation we need to make because for me, that delineation means this was Lucy's very clear suicide. And it was a suicide based on pain. And it was, you know, a sense that if uh, you know, Anna didn't believe her. Perhaps it wasn't real, or, or it was. You know, she couldn't handle it. Whether she uh, saw doubt in herself, or knew truly that in this moment, after killing this whole family, that she would never, ever be able to shake this monster. She couldn't go on, and it's it's that's what makes Lucy's death so truly heartbreaking to me. That uh, she had this immense strength, and she carried herself. And she tried and she tried and she tried and it just, it destroyed her and it destroyed her in front of the person that loved her truly. It's so, um, it's emotionally devastating. And that's where this film, I think if you get on the train for this film, this is kind of one of those points where you can get off and go, "Ah, this movie isn't for me. But if, you know, you see that and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure men have nice friendships, but the intensity of a female friendship that you have had since childhood, like that, that is deeper than sisterhood. That's that's almost deeper than blood in a lot of cases. So um, I think for a lot of women I know, it speaks to them in a really kind of pure level because it there is something true that rings within that moment. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, you know, we all have different readings in this film. As we get obviously further into the towards the ending of the film, it has a lot of political connotations and uh, a lot a lot of readings that, for whatever reason, this this time when I watched it, the only reading I had of it was a purely emotional one, and a lot of what Alexandra's saying really rang true to me, and I viewed this moment as this is actually a film about um you know as which is a love story and when you know he brings up the credit when he says martyr as a witness you know he defines it as a witness and made me think that actually what it's really about is uh anna as a witness to um lucy's uh pain and it's only through you know experiencing it herself that she can attain true love for her friend and it's through once she understands what she went through that's what the film for me was about this reading doesn't you know of course it doesn't mean i was right but that was why i think i felt the film uh so emotionally this time because it's so well well you know it just give it had real payoff for that that story whether it's if you're not reading into the bourgeois story and the the political elements of it the the, the love story is really really um you know effective I'm still pretty sure that these are the people that tortured Lucy when she was a kid, but you're still there's still that little bit of doubt. And when they remove that doubt, when Anna finds that there's a secret chamber and it leads down into this hallway where they have all these pictures of women who uh, have been tortured or are near death and they have this kind of angelic look in their eyes. It's kind of like torture's greatest hits kind of thing. And she finds the whole chamber down below. And then when she finds another victim of torture and i've i stopped the 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 dvr at this point and i was like we are exactly halfway through this film and here we have another complete right turn i would say that the discovery of the torture chamber really just puts everything that we've seen into a whole new light and really just takes away all of that any sort of doubt that we might have had for lucy and kind of recast that very important moment that we were just talking about of Lucy's suicide really puts even more weight on it now that we see what's going on and now that we see this new victim of the torture that's been going on and this poor woman who has this device that's basically stapled onto her head and i don't know how it's it's being kept over her um pelvic region but i wouldn't be surprised if there were some staples happening there as well all of these open wounds on her she is just a complete mess and now all of a sudden we're into this whole other realm inside of this movie and again kind of playing out real time though this is a moment where we start to see some some dissolves and some moments where we're kind of speeding up time a little bit but it god it is just harrowing especially when anna decides that she's going to take the staples out of this mask i mean that is one of the most gut-wrenching scenes of this film for me no, and it has an extreme guilt to it, that sequence. Right, the, the initial discovery, I think that's one of the reasons it's so effective. You know, she discovers this and realizes everything her friend had ever told her was real, you know, and really adds weight to come right after her suicide. And I think the moment that's actually most effective for me out of this sequence is seconds after the one you just mentioned, Mike, which is uh, Anna gets the lady with the headpiece into a bath and is trying to calm her and takes these staples out, starts getting this thing off her. And like the woman is kind of like holding Anna or letting herself be held. And there's this moment of just pure humanity in the midst of this kind of terrifying 
um, monstrosity of ugliness, that the things that we can do to each other, but there's still that need for human connection. And it just, I, I think that's what Lagier gets so right in, again, so many of these moments in this film is just adding those moments where it is like, uh, you know, it, it's that touch, it's that tenderness and that this film can be nihilistic and it can be scary and it can be brutal, but there is this love and there's a love in the center of this film. And it's, it's just brilliant. I think I feel like I said that a lot about this film, but I don't care. And, and it sets Anna apart too. I mean, she even showed uh, empathy for the shot wife, you know, the who was dying on the yep. floor and tried to help her. So she is definitely setting herself apart and might go a long way to reason why she, at the end, is is different from so many of the other victims. Well, in this victim, this woman who has been tortured, it doesn't take long for her to try to kill herself after she's out of this bath, trying to uh, cut her wrists and trying to smash her head into a wall, which is is very similar to what we've just seen Lucy doing uh, a few scenes earlier. And then she gets shot out of nowhere. And that's yet another like kind of a jump scare for me, just this moment when she just takes a, a bullet to the head. And again, interesting to me that it is a woman who shoots her, you know, again, very active roles for all of these women in here. And we have this woman who she kind of reminds me of like a, a Bond villain. She's got this turban, these glasses, and she comes in and she basically sets Anna down and explains the plot and tells us what's going to happen, what has happened, what's going to happen, and tells us about this whole idea of torturing women because women are, are more uh, sensitive for transformation, she says, and trying to take women up to this moment where they basically have uh, are still alive but are passing into another world, passing into the afterlife. And that's this goal of these people is to find women to torture to this point so that they can learn more about the afterlife. So again, another you know left turn in this film where it's just like, whoa, all of a sudden now we know why they're trying to torture these women. It isn't just a torture for torture's sake. Which a lot of, you know, unfortunately, you look at a film like Hostel and you're like, okay, yeah, it's kind of torture for torture's sake. But here there's actually a moment where we have like, all right, this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to push these people to this, you know, new moment. And Lucy was a victim of this. And apparently she was pretty primed. It looked like she was going to be the next martyr. And now, Anna, hey, you're here. Let's try you out for for a run. How about that? You said she's a Bond villain. She does. I mean, she does look like that. When we get to the remake, we'll really talk about the misfire and that and that element. But I actually thought she was really interesting. I think it goes to that like the benevolent evil idea that that true evil, the true face of evil, is something just really plain and really normal, like a, you know uh, somebody you could meet in a tax office. And there was something about her presence that actually it really worked for me. But again, I think what you're talking structurally about all these like left turns. It, it does seem to be um, a unique, you know, uh, structure. Uh, I think actually uh, the chapter on this in Alexandra's book was pretty illuminating about the structure of why it was like this. I thought. Yeah, because in my reading of the film, it is predominantly about the uh, experience of torture and the way it's kind of showed in reverse, and that uh, it's ultimately the story of these two women. So I, I can absolutely see, I, I think a lot of people struggle with those left turns, as you've pinpointed, Mike, but for me, in my reading of it and my viewing of it as an audience member, I just kind of like 
those don't matter to me as much as what these two women experience and what they learn and what we learn through them. And uh, I love the one really interesting thing about uh, the, the only name they give her in the film, this kind of quote unquote Bond villain is the Mademoiselle. And I always thought it was very interesting that they refer to as the Mademoiselle and not Madame which would be the French proper way of doing it. So it's this kind of, I, the only thing I can associate it with perhaps is uh, this kind of eternal testament to youth. And she's obviously, you know, an older woman. And this uh, this kind of secret sector society is all very old and very white. And um, it just kind of speaks to this weird uh, unreality that these people have put themselves in in order to do this to some degree. Well, I said it was a woman who shoots this other torture victim. It's also the Mademoiselle who knocks Anna out and kind of you know introduces her to this new life of torture, rather than the man who's behind her who's about to strike her. And Mademoiselle you know puts this uh, cloth over her face and knocks her out. And really, it's like the men in this film have such little to do up until this point where they just become these sources for punching you know and this becomes this whole thing where we see anna being tortured now and just being beaten by these men who really they don't have a whole lot to say they just go in and they beat the shit out of her or there's a moment where they um, cut her hair off and then it's a i believe it's a woman who we see feeding her so it's it's interesting as well that the men are just providing the the pain and the women i know it's probably not the best food in the world are providing the sustenance and it's just like okay it's uh, again it's it's kind of a, a neat thing to see in some of these other films it would probably just be all men torturing all the time all men all the the time but here we actually have men and women who are doing this horrible horrible thing to this young girl yeah i mean it could be because he he was concerned otherwise it would just seem one note you know that it's about masculinities uh you know abuse of women versus it's actually societal you know it's a, this is probably a very conscious way to open up the conversation about uh you know the uh torture in this film and what do you guys think about the way that they come in and they cut off her hair? I mean, obviously that kind of makes me think of like a concentration camp victim, but it also, at least what I'm thinking is it helps kind of remove her from gender a little bit rather than being this young girl with long hair by cutting off the hair kind of makes her a little bit more asexual. Do you guys see that at all? Or again, is that just me? Well, you can definitely also read all the way back to a figure like Joan of Arc, like, uh, even um, Samson and Delilah, like there is a kind of biblical uh, notion of hair, especially hair on women, that provides a kind of femininity and a certain kind of amount of power that you know we supposedly have with long hair. And um, a lot of ways, uh, and sometimes in torture, I, I came across this in my research, and I don't think I wound up putting it in the book, but there is a sense that you want to dissociate the person from themselves when you torture them. So you have to remove the emblems of what make them them. And when you've got, you know, this poor girl who's been, you know, trapped in this house, losing a woman she loves, and all she's got on are like a t-shirt and baggy pants and long, long-ish hair, that's one of the easiest things to do is to cut that. And uh, it begins to dehumanize you. It begins to um, alter your perception of yourself, even without mirrors. You know that you've lost part of yourself, something that society has identified as attractive. So yeah, I, I think there is uh 
you know, completely. And as a woman myself, if you haven't already guessed with, uh, you know, below shoulder length hair, you know, it is part of who I am. It's part of this identity that I have cultivated. And I think uh, there's always uh, an idea around women with short hair. And I love short hair. My hair type just won't pull it off. But that it's, you know, it's this choice that you have as a woman that you're going against the typical feminine idea of beauty to have or not have it. So, it, it definitely, I think, feeds in at that very kind of basic level. I think we have a history of it. I think there's a biblical history of it. And then on an even just more kind of, you know, practical, immediate, physical level, it's it's very much something that can be tied to a lot of women for their personalities. Again, not every woman, but that, that can be something that really plays into our identity or something we associate with ourselves. Yeah, it's very effective in the film. Do you remember the film Elena? It happens to Monica Bellucci uh, in the streets because she was rumored. It's a, you know said in post, you know, during just after World War II, and you know it, there was said that she might have been sleeping with a Nazi soldier or somebody who was you know sympathetic, sympathetic, even though it's not true. It's just a rumor, and they take them, drag you into the street, and cut all your hair off. And it's it's really uh, I find it more disturbing than much worse things that can happen to a person. Weirdly enough, the way they present it, like uh, like Alexander's saying, I think. Uh, slowly losing your sense of self and and in this film you need to lose a sense of self so you can become other and become something bigger than you know uh at least that's what they're hoping for that's funny because one of the victims um uh, one of the people that are shown in this photo album of this Torture's Greatest Hits was uh, uh, accused of sleeping with a German soldier, a French woman in this case, rather than probably an Italian woman, which is, I imagine, what Bellucci was playing. But yeah, that's funny. That's, I didn't. Yeah, I forgot. Totally forgot that. That's right. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's a you know a side a sidequel shared universe, <laughs> but for Marvel, just like Abraxas and the Principal. It's like the saddest MCU ever. Marina Devan comes in cutting herself, and then uh, oh no, <laughs> I'd watch it. I'm in. <laughs> I, I don't really want to go through and just talk about all of these scenes because basically it gets a little redundant after a while here of just men coming in and punching on Anna, and I was just like, okay. And this was another moment the first time I watched the film where I was just like, and I know that this is effective as a you know a. Uh, cinematic device is that I am feeling the torture. I'm feeling, you know, the the pain of all of these blows happening and stuff. But really, I'm just feeling kind of the the clock going by a little bit. I'm just like, okay, enough. Let's go to the next thing. But uh, again, I'm saying enough also because you can only watch someone being tortured so long, and it just is. It gets to you after a while. So my natural reaction is, okay, enough. Let's let's cut to the next scene. But I think know? this I think this is key because I think this is where I misinterpreted the film when it came out, which is uh, Saw and Hostel are literally movies about how you torture people, the creative ways you do it. How oh, I wonder how they'll torture someone in the next Saw movie. I wonder what device they'll use, what trap will be in the next movie. And this is a film that is doing the complete opposite. It's giving you just a repetitive, slowly breaking down the person form of torture. So it isn't titillating or interesting, but it's essential to you know what they're doing to the character. And so I think on first viewing, when I'd lumped it all together, now I can really see the difference. And it's, you know, it's, it makes a lot of sense to me. 
Yeah, and I was glad that there wasn't that like, okay, and for today, we're going to take a, sh- a fish knife and put it under each of your nails and this, that, and the other thing. And then next Tuesday, we're going to do this other torture. Yeah, so it was... It's idea-driven, right? This movie is idea-driven versus plot-driven. And those films are always about you know the cleverness of a twist or a story. And this is purely about this one idea from start to end. It is around this point, after we have so much of this torture, that we start to get inside of Anna's head and at least the way I interpreted it was it seems like she's either hearing snatches of conversation that she had with Lucy or she's having a conversation with Lucy who is basically telling her to let go and this is helping her move into this next phase and the next phase according to this secret society is to take her and put her in this device and remove all of her skin other than the skin on her face. And this is one of the few moments where it's actually a guy doing something in the movie uh, other than, you know, punching on her. And it is this man who removes all of her skin and we don't really know exactly what's going on. And to see the look on her face, there is no, reaction at all while this is happening and i'm glad that they don't really dwell on this they make it a little bit more of a a surprise when they finally show her in this new state where of course you know we're talking about pin on this um uh uh, this month's movie so i'm thinking of pin as i'm watching this as kind of anatomical you know dummy thing because it's just her face with skin and then the rest of her body you just see all of the the meat underneath her skin and it is a very effective and affecting image to see especially her kind of strung up almost like this uh she wasn't like the 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 vitruvian man or anything but she kind of reminded me of that a little bit just they're completely helpless with all of the skin missing from her body it was pretty uh pretty moving well like images of um you know concentration camp images you've you see lately what's the chris marker short film and alan renee uh short film uh night and fog you know uh there's one shot on that film where i almost can't take it you know i'm watching this it's a very poetic film about about an atrocity but there's a one moment where you see one of the experiments where the heads i believe are in some sort of almost like a cube and they've been like studied and I, when you think that that's a, a living human's head, it, it's very hard to take versus just a cinematic image. And I felt the same way with Martyrs. That, that's the one thing that held true from the first viewing to this viewing. This end sequence of that of that image is very strong. Yeah, you don't think of special effects when it comes to this movie. And even when it comes to this moment, it, you're not thinking, well, I wonder how they did that effect because it just feels so real when you look at it. Yeah, I think for me, the the most important point to mention in this section that we're talking about now is the fact that um, earlier in the film, we know that Lucy hallucinated the woman, the other victim who she couldn't save that was attacking her. We hear from the Mademoiselle that what uh, the woman with the kind of face visor head mask thing was hallucinating was bugs on her body. That's why she was always trying to claw off her skin. So it's important to note that Anna's hallucination is Lucy. It's the voice of someone she loves who, uh, as long as you know, we have been introduced to Lucy, was in severe crisis. But it's the voice of Lucy in this instance is calm. It's loving. It's telling her that in some essence, she's okay. She, all she has to do is to let go. That's all that's left for her. And you know, so that is such a huge point of this film that when Anna is being tortured, what she hears is words of love, which allow her to transcend 
So I, I think it's very important to make that distinction when we talk about this point. And again, the so the uh, the flame, the flame of um, Anna's body is. It's it is like it's it's fucked up, but it also kind of doesn't matter. It's uh, it's a bit more to do with the iconography of the film for me rather than uh, something actually you know present and important within the film. Yeah, and the and I and I think the, the what you keep talking about is what she's hearing being love. You know, I'm not I'm not a I don't view it necessarily religiously, but I do listen to Nick Cave, and I uh, know the, the the key lyric that I always think about was when he says, "But God, you know, God is love." So whether you believe in God or not, if you believe in love, and we can interpret that as godliness. And in this film, yeah. I feel that's a big part of it. When I when I feel this moment, it really washed over me because what she's hearing is something beautiful and. And forgiving, which is something I think is important to this character because she's probably felt very guilty, you know, for not having believed uh, Lucy. And now she can she can let go with that information. And she's comforted because she, in some instance, she's not alone. It's not an attack, as you know, Elric, as you were just saying. It's it's a kind of beautiful way to let go because you know you believe in some part of yourself that you're going to go back to the person that you loved. Which is kind of, I think, what we all want to believe when, you know, whenever we give up this mortal coil, that that's what will happen to us. So it's it's really pretty life affirming in some ways. And probably won't happen if you're an asshole who skins someone. You know what I mean? So there's a nice, there's a nice feeling as you watch this. Regardless, we'll get to obviously what they say or don't say, but there's this feeling of, you know, hey, if you string someone up and skin them, chances are you're not going to experience what this person's actually getting to experience. You know. Well, and I like that it's around here after she's kind of right there on the edge that we go back into the house proper, that we go back upstairs, and now we see this new couple who has moved into this house and who are living this kind of idyllic, false uh, life up there. And for some reason, I was waiting for a jump scare to happen. They're just so, everything is so calm and so perfect. And again, we're back to that completely antiseptic world up above. And it doesn't happen. There is no jump scare. I was, I was glad Lucy didn't, you know, show back up and be like, surprise, motherfucker, I'm here. You know, but that is the moment where they realize that she has, that Anna has moved into this this other state and you know it's an all points bulletin get all of the old white people over to the house and let's you know uh take a look at 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 anna in this state where she's got this heavenly look on her eyes where she's cast her eyes up to you know what we don't necessarily see though as an audience we get to see a little bit of of what she is seeing and we have the the mademoiselle return to the story and uh, listen to what Lucy has to say. And I have to say, I'm not really sure what's happening in this scene. So I'm, I'd be very curious to get your guys' interpretation of, of what exactly the mademoiselle might be hearing and why she ends up putting a gun in her mouth and killing herself. My simple interpretation of it is that... Anna says something to the effect of, because of what you and the people in this sect have done, you will never know. And that would lead the mademoiselle to uh, kill herself rather than face this group of, I'm sure, very wealthy, creepy old people who she can't disappoint. And if that's what she's going to come back with, it's easier to take a gunshot out than face that. My, I mean, my first note said the same thing Bill Murray whispers to Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation. But that's not you know, clearly what's actually happening here. I do think that she is saying 
the love you have on Earth is the love you'll carry on into the afterlife. And so they're all fucked, you know? But I also, th- I also think the intent of the filmmaker is exactly like the ending of the thing where there isn't an, a direct, clear answer. He, they want you to project. They didn't make a, a clever choice and give you a little clue in there. I think they want you to project your beliefs and what you fear comes after into what you're watching. You know? uh, and I think that's why these movies are more powerful than when you give people you know, everything. You fill in the blanks for them. I mean, it's also it would be fun that I did have because these movies tend to have catharsis and revenge. I, I did like the idea that maybe she just lied to her. <laughs> I just like the idea she comes back from this amazing thing and just tells something totally, you know, a total lie to her that makes her die. But uh, you know, probably not. There is nothing else after this, yeah. right? It, it is an interesting choice. I mean, one of the one of the more interesting choices in the movie is showing the white light. Right. Uh, it's it, it almost was surprising in that moment. It works. It works for the film, but I don't know if I had a clear reading of that, to be honest. I mean, I know uh, Frederick Wiseman made that one documentary series where people who had near-death experiences were interviewed, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them, and all of them had almost the exact same experience, which is pretty uncanny. And there was a white light and a, and a calling. And that always surprised me in a documentary to see that kind of result. Um, but yeah, that part, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested I don't know, Alexandra, did you have any reading of that part, or just it's kind of par for the course for this kind of vision? That, for me, just signified that it is, in fact, an afterlife, and that, and in my reading of it, and again, this is a lot of me, just I want good things for Anna, because I really, really like her, um, is that she's kind of going there, like she's transferring, she's moving off, and it signified to me that she actually did see something, so rather than just a kind of like, I'm going to fuck with the secret society, it's like there is a reality there, there's a grounding in what she has said, and that all of this was, you know, not for nothing, that, um, you know, she could experience something, and that maybe in this crazy, fucked up world of Laguier, she got a good ending, Right, and it tells the audience it's real. So it tells the audience it's real, but it doesn't tell the secret society it's real. So they're left not knowing, but we know. So it's you know it's interesting. I, I keep thinking, do you remember that scene? Uh, have you ever seen V vs. V? The scene Anna Karina watches Joan of Arc uh, in the movie theater. And for whatever reason, I don't find any of Goddard's films particularly emotional, but there's just one shot where she's watching Joan of Arc and she has tears running down her face, and I always react emotionally. And it's it feels it reminded me when I wa- finished watching this movie this time, I thought of that scene, and I don't know why. It was like she's a witness to that passion of Joan of Arc, whatever. That means I love Passion of Joan of Arc. I mean, the first time I saw that, I couldn't. It, it just it stayed with me for all these years. You know, I can still picture the trial scene and everything. It's just it's wonderful. And yeah, I can see that kind of look on her face being very similar to what we're seeing with Anna. Yeah, that would make a great double feature to to see how one bleeds into the other. Bleed? Is that a joke? Yeah, well, yeah. it wasn't, but <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> the Bill Murray one fell flat, so. We are going to take a break and play a few messages from our sponsors. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third... A little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. 
So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi, I'm Steven Seagal. That's right, Steven Seagal. And for the past 40 years, in between barbecue and oxen and roasting boar for my insatiable appetite, I never miss an episode of Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid Commentaries. Ain't that right, Johnny? Hi, I'm Dr. Action. Hi, and I'm the Kick-Ass Kid. When I'm not watching action films, I'm usually polishing my gum while looking at a back. And when I'm not watching action films, I'm normally outside with a harpoon killing puppies. But usually you can find us both watching 80s, 90s action films. You could follow us on Twitter, Dr. Action Kickass. You can find us on our main page, which is dractionkickass.blogspot.com. You can also find us on iTunes and TalkShoe. Yes, every week we do a commentary on an 80s and 90s action classic, and where we can, we also provide the film so that you can watch along with it. This podcast explodes. Hey, Projection Booth listeners, I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor, and we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. (laughs) Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, the projection booth. I know. It's messed up, right? And we were talking about Martyrs. It seems that the cycle of original to remake is getting pretty tight these days. Martyrs came out in France in 2008 and already in 2015, maybe 2016. I couldn't really get a good uh, release date for this one. There was a U.S. remake. And, uh, yeah, uh, I loved reading your tweets about uh, watching this one, Elric. 
Yeah. Well, you know, uh, because my podcast, Shockwaves, is sponsored by Blumhouse, I actually thought it was a fabulous film. Really interesting. The details were just terrific. Loved it. I really thought they got the essence of the idea spot on. And that's all I need to say. <laughs> um, no. Uh, luckily, Blumhouse does not control anything we say. Uh, I, really, oh, I really thought it was one of the worst remakes I've ever seen. And that's including the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, which I just thought was atrocious. Because of one simple thing, and it is that it misses the idea or doesn't understand the idea of the film at any moment in the film. At every moment, at every choice it makes, it it goes in the opposite direction of the idea that drove the first movie. So it's one thing, you know, we can talk about the chasteness of it. We can talk about, like, not not the, the lack of extremity. All those things are problems, but they all come back to the fact that it didn't understand why the first film exists and why it works. And it's really, really was like pulling teeth. I've got to say, about 15 minutes and I was ready to just go, okay, let's just say I saw it. <laughs> you know? And I stuck it out because of the show, and that's the reason I tweeted. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of things. And it also um, it, it does things like, um, you know, let's make them all nuns and priests, you know, versus people and society and a, and a group. It's that kind of choice, that kind of J-horror. Oh, suddenly the creature you see is, it could be a spooky ghost, which is a very Blumhouse tactic, of course, uh, that kind of feeling. But, uh, you know, it's, there wasn't a lot to be... Um, I, in fact, I cannot say a single thing about it that I really appreciated. i got to be honest. Alexander, I know you're a huge fan of this one. Yeah, I don't know what you guys are talking about. It's fabulous. <laughs> now, it's a bullshit movie made by bullshit people, um, and it's everything that's wrong with horror. And um, I, I've always had some suspicions about some of the companies involved with this remake. And I just kind of was like, oh, this is what they think horror fans want. And this is what they think is appropriate. And I, I couldn't imagine a bigger middle finger, uh, frankly, to a community. And uh, so I actually found it pretty offensive. I found it offensive in its mediocrity. I found it offensive in its... Um, sheer sheer ineptitude of storytelling um it, it was such a clear money grab that i just was like I, I also got very drunk while i was watching it and had to go back and rewatch a few scenes so that made me even angrier um but you and, and the funny thing yeah. is you say money grab and I, sorry i hate to cut you off and that was the weirdest part i'm like why remake that movie <laughs> like like that that's a movie that had a you know cult appeal and it's powerful but you're like of all the movies to like you why would you try to make money off that film you know it's well because very they san because they sanitized it because uh, yeah. they thought they could sanitize it enough to make it quote unquote mainstream for the North American horror audience that doesn't like to read subtitles. And yeah, I'm sure there are people out there who like more sanitized horror that doesn't have subtitles. But, you know, it's, it's, this is a, these films, um, and I think this is a film that can attempt to raise the bar in a lot of ways. If, if you choose to take this journey with it, you know, it, it expands your view in a lot of ways. And so this was like, I mean, I have a lot of angry feelings towards this film and i think uh if anything it just firmly solidified the original's place in my mind and it firmly solidified it as a french film that it is a deeply french film and that when this kind of story becomes americanized it becomes this kind of pseudo torture porny Esque thing, and there's nothing wrong with torture porn, but it's a different beast. And I think these two have similar traits in some ways, but they're, as we've already talked about on this episode, 
different things. So I think it's just lazy filmmaking and I think it's boring. And I think Martyr's remake 2015, 2016 should be fucking taken by the secret society and tortured and skinned alive. I agree. It's so vanilla. That's the incredible thing about it. And and the one thing I, I would recommend anyone listening to this who doesn't want to sit through the pain of this movie, just watch like the first 20 minutes. And what I, I noted, the major note I wrote was everything that is felt in the first film, things you watch and are felt in this film are said out loud. Every idea in this film is put into dialogue that a character will express, and that is, you know, with a horror film, that is just instant. To me, it's just instant death. There's the the lack of visual storytelling in this remake. Instantly, uh, even if they had done a good job of, say, the ending, which they didn't, which is even the most vanilla element of this whole movie, but they just don't, and they just are trying to use words to ex- to explain what would happen, say, in the third act after going through an hour of ambiguity or um, you know guesswork on our part, say, in the first film. Uh, in this remake, is set in the first few minutes of the movie. They're really giving you everything you would need to know, and it and it completely takes away from the experience. Well, this movie really shows you, to me, whatever what is wrong with a North American audience, where we really see the flaying this time, and we have uh, Lucy, who's still alive. I found that interesting, you know, that they keep Lucy alive, so that whole thing has changed. But we have her screaming and crying and carrying on while the flaying is happening, rather than not really seeing anything happening during the French version. And then, so it's, it's absolutely fine. You can be as violent as you want when it comes to this stuff. You can, you can torture women. That's absolutely fine. But for God's sakes, when she has all of her skin ripped off, please make sure you put a t-shirt on her because we don't even want a hint of flayed boobies on screen. It was just like, what the fuck? It's not even that she's skinned. It's it's only a patch in her back. Yeah, it's a patch. Oh, of Jesus! Yeah, no, she's not even like that it's was not. The most it's not her full part. body. Yeah, it's just one little part. It's so bizarre. Oh, jeez. The yeah, other part that true. drove me in. The other part that drove me insane was that it's not a woman with this kind of visor thing that uh, the Anna character, I guess, finds. It's like this beautiful blonde little girl who's oh, yeah. like, "Hey, my, my mom!" Like, fuck yeah. off. Oh yeah, it's it's really it, it's so um, paranormal activity five or six. You know, it's it's like that little girl who runs uh, the ghost dimension, whatever the fuck it's called. It's one of my least favorite movies, but it, those it's so beautified. And oh, there's hope. She can run off into the distance, and we'll feel the hope of this situation. And it's like th- that's not what this movie's about. Well, I was at least hoping for a twist, you know, of uh, an Arlie Ermy as the uh, sheriff who's related to the family from, um, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, sure, little girl, we'll get you help right away. And you know that it's someone related to the Mademoiselle or something. And then, nope, nope, it, she, she gets the police. That's absolutely fine. And that she, it looks absolutely okay. Anna and Lucy, really, there's very little damage to them. Even when when Lucy is escaping when she's a kid, she's barely running and she barely has any damage done to her whatsoever. Whereas with the the Lucy of the the French version, you're like, well, she might lose an eye. I mean, she looks terrible. She's completely beat up. And this one, it's like, yeah, you got a little bruising around a little part of your face there, but you know, it'll heal in a week or something. But yeah, and then that all three of them at the end, all three of these young women all of them have their long hair and stuff and it's all shot so dark and that's one of the things that in the original film so much of it is 
either daylight or very stark lighting and you get a lot of light happening and in this it was all shot kind of murkily so there are many parts where i'm like well is that anna is that lucy is that that other girl i don't know who i'm even looking at right now yeah there's no real clear central protagonist in this one and you never feel the guilt because she never dies it, it has so many issues with it and and it does ask a bigger question of like what is horror for like what do they think we want from a horror film and, and you know the clarity of idea of the original martyrs is what I, mean, I can't speak for other people but what i want from a horror film i want the person uh, you know one of the things that's most striking this this is a slightly backward step but the there's a making of uh, on the disc, which again we should also talk about how hard this film is to find now in uh, in America. It's not even in print anymore, really, on DVD, and it's not on Blu-ray, which strikes me as really bizarre given the amount of shit getting. Uh, the fact that Microwave Massacre is getting an Arrow Video Blu-ray release with hours of extras, you know, a film that I probably wouldn't even watch on YouTube. Uh, and Martyrs hasn't got a proper release is is, is rather telling uh, in maybe what they think we want to see versus what maybe we really want to see. Oh, I don't know if it's available in Canada. Uh, not to my knowledge, it's not. And that was actually a thing that I, when I initially saw before it was before it was released um, in time to include a bit about it in my book. And uh, I was like, oh, maybe this means the original will get like a really sweet DVD Blu-ray re-release and that'll kind of make it all worth it. So I'm still waiting. The making of is so honest and uh, you, you see Pascal's journey, and he's continually opening up. Uh, some of the quotes uh, actually in the chapter on it in Alexandra's book seem to be almost quotes. I don't know if they're lifted from that, but probably he said it before, where he's just being completely honest about the difficulties of making this film and coming from a depressed place, but trying to express an idea, not trying to entertain someone. And I think there's a real problem in L.A. Uh, and, and Hollywood uh, films, especially horror films, this feeling that, the, that they think the audience needs to be entertained. And I don't think that's actually always the case uh, in films, and especially in horror films. Sometimes it's not about entertainment. It's about experience, experiential uh, feeling for two hours. I, I can experience I, – I can watch a Fassbender film and not be entertained and walk outside and feel pretty good about life because I watched you know, some Germans in uh, 1970 suffering. It's, it's, we're more complicated than what they are giving us credit for as viewers, and, it, and, and that bothers me. Uh, pretty deeply. So when I see a movie that does come out of nowhere like that, it's it's impossible not to notice it. And I've seen a couple in the last couple of years um, coming out, but they're always independent films. There are never, there are almost never studio movies. So I'm curious, Alexander, where does Martyrs 2008, the original film that we've been talking about most of this episode, where does that kind of fit into the whole movement of the French extremity films? Lagier himself doesn't like to include it under that label. He doesn't like to include it under any label. He sees it very much as a pure work in every interview I found with him. Um, and I cite within the book, he says that. It's essentially like the epicenter of the horror portion of New French Extremity. Now, New French Extremity began as an art house movement within France and then transferred over to horror. And this is the kind of duality I explore in this book that I have. And what martyrs means to me within this movement is it kind of signals an 
end of it to a certain degree. It was kind of the last French made um, horror film that really speaks to a lot of the aesthetics of it and also really pushes it and it renders it a really challenging film in a lot of ways, in part because on one hand it is super nihilistic and on the other hand, because as we've talked about uh, quite a lot, I think, is that there is a lot of love in it and um, it, it creates this really intense emotional connection if, if you uh, engage with the film. And um, it does kind of feel like after this film and after the films that have come before, you know, everything from Eel to Inside to Irreversible and many, many others, uh, I don't know what's left to explore. And uh, a lot of these were kind of in 2008 when this came out, uh, started getting attention in North America. They were getting little like these kind of uh, horror cults around them. And so a lot of these directors were being snatched up uh, by Hollywood and being put into this kind of machine that uh, we've just been talking about. And um so, you know, we've we've kind of saw it die out in a lot of ways. Uh, recently, there is a film just uh, that just screened at TIFF called Raw, which I unfortunately did not get to see. Um, but uh, a lot of people have asked me about it since because it's um, apparently a very violent film about a young girl. It's French. Um, there's a lot of interesting facet to it, it sounds like. So uh, as of right now, I'd say Martyrs is kind of of new French extremities in a lot of ways. Yeah, and within those films, uh, you know, listed in her book, and I, I'm actually excited to read the other chapters because I didn't have time besides the chapter we're talking about. But I, I actually came into back into horror through some of these movies, transitioning from uh, art house and foreign films because growing up in New Zealand, the film festival there is just incredible. They they'll put on an international festival where they play everything, um, and movies like um, In My Skin, Criminal Lovers, and especially Twenty Nine Palms really are, are grounded in that same reality in that same way where they are not there to entertain you. They're there to show you something and make you experience something versus things like Inside and High Tension, which are a little mixture. They're still very entertaining as horror films. They're fun at a certain point in them, you know, but uh, In My Skin is, you know, it's a tough movie to watch, but it's it's also like Martyrs, it, it leaves you feeling something for someone pretty, pretty, you know, deeply. And 29 Palms might be the most effective ending I've ever seen in a movie. Like it literally knocked me on my ass. I was actually just saying the same thing on my podcast that oh. <laughs> 29 Palms is the most affecting film I've ever seen. Like I just sat there and I felt like, I felt like Lucy at the, running away from that house in the beginning. Um, and uh, I think all of these films in a lot of ways, uh, or in every way rather, they deal with an element of societal transgression, and they all deal with them in different ways. Um, and I think the different lenses that they employ to explore what is transgressive, what is taboo, um, is part of what makes them, you know, terrifyingly audience to a mainstream crowd. And um, that's, that's kind of why I love them so much. And I think something that a lot of us, probably a lot of people listening, and I especially feel that I think was cool about your book was actually the first couple chapters contextualize it, uh, why French culture politically, and then a chapter on the film industry itself. And th those are the things that I think when a lot of us have seen these movies, we have no context for that besides minor ideas of you know, French Re Revolution, Grand Guignol Theater, guillotining in public. I mean, those are the key beats we know, but it, it's nice to see someone actually lay it out and um, as you know, a context for what you're about to then, if you then go and watch the films after reading those chapters, it seems like that'd be a good way to go. 
because each of these films, as I was watching them, seemed to tie to some aspect of history, whether explicitly or implicitly. And I was in the process of working on these films and doing a lecture that turned into this book. I was having to teach myself French history because, as you were just saying, I think a lot of us have those big brushstrokes. But uh, there is a lot of theory. There is a lot of sociological work, a lot of theoretical work around the Nazi occupation of France and what that did to the French psyche and how it led to generations of repression. And um, so that's that's kind of what this book tackles. And it posits that essentially these films are a way of reckoning with the past in the most visceral, visceral way you can imagine. There's there's one film that's not in the book, but also because he's he's Austrian, so I'm sure that's probably why. But I think it's in Paris. But uh, Cachet by Haneke really mm-hmm. makes me think of now. I'm, I'm thinking about what the next cycle of films. Let's say these films are still being made. The fear of the immigrant, ISIS, like how some of these things will play on the the psyche of you know filmmakers and what they might express. I'm I'm very curious. Uh, but Haneke's seem to be very very topical now. You know hadn't aged. So how did you decide to go from doing the lecture on the the French extremity to doing a whole book about it? That came about, so I did this lecture as part of the Black Museum, which is a horror lecture event series here in Toronto, uh, which is run by um, my friend and writer for Rumor, Paul Korup, and my friend, writer, uh, co-host of the Faculty of Horror, Andrea Subasati. And they asked me back in at 24, 14, I believe it was now, uh, to do a um, to do a lecture on New French Extremity. And I said, yeah. And they were like, cool, you've got a month and a half. And so I had a month and a half to pull together, you know, a two and a half hour lecture or whatever it was. And it took a lot of work. And there was a lot of people really interested in the topic, a lot of people reaching out to me. I'd written a couple articles about it. This lecture was a really big undertaking. And I felt like through doing the lecture, there's a lot of, lot of content about New French Extremity as the film movement and a lot of people separate it into the art house into, into the horror part and to me those two parts speak so explicitly to each other that that's what my lecture dealt with and it dealt with these kind of glimmers of history that were infiltrating them and, and what these films illuminated about French history and um and again, there was even months after I did it, you know, a year after I did it, there were still questions about it. And so I'd been kind of like, oh, maybe one day I'll write a book. And then this just felt like something that stayed with me. And I was going back and revisiting these films. I was telling other people about these films. I was getting asked about these films. So this just felt like the topic that I could write, you know, 85,000 words about or whatever it wound up being. And, um, it's, it's something that I felt really passionate about. And there's never a point when I was working on this book, it took about, uh, I want to say eight or nine months to write and research basically moving again from my original research. And, um, there was never a point where I was bored or frustrated. Uh, there are points where it got really depressing because the topics are really depressing. Um, but I never wanted to give up on it. And, uh, I just kind of put it together and I, I wrote it and then McFarland published it. So here we are. Now, if you were to be in the wild and see a film and, and try to say, okay, that's one of the uh, new French extremity films, what are some of the things that you would look for? I imagine first one has to be in French. 
Mainly. Uh, so the film uh, Alaric and I were just talking about, 29 Palms, is actually set in the States. Um, and it's not, it, there is some French language in it, but none of the characters speak each other's language. Uh, the two main characters, they don't speak each other's language. So the only kind of common language they have is really broken French and some and English. Fucking. There's a lot of that. Uh, but so I think, so the French language is predominant. There are elements of being on the French soil, but again, this is not always, we're not beholden to these rules. Um, I think explicit depictions of sexuality. Uh, there are some films that I talk about in the book where the sex is unsimulated um, and uh, explicit depictions of violence. And often those two things will feed into each other. Um, there is an intimacy that's present and that intimacy is between characters and it's also between the camera and the actors and the mise en and um, there's a lot of um, kind of roving cameras. It's, it's really, uh, there's a real aesthetic element to it and that it can go kind of like from grainy digital that you can see in a film like Baisemois to a more kind of omniscient, uh, kind of traditionally shot film, I would say maybe like inside. Uh, but they have these kind of, you know, visceral, like the experiential qualities to the filmmaking that make them feel a lot more tactile than, uh, than some other kind of um horror genre films we might think of so those those are kind of the big tenets i would say of new french extremity um and and that's kind of what i posit the book out of though there are other things that you can add in and subtract and that's part of the beauty of film writing and discussion yeah like i like that you guys include uh calvaire even though it's belgium but belgium is french you know if it speaks french and and I, and I think funny games and things like that you know certainly could almost brush in there but yeah i I totally agree (laughs) makes sense yeah and and there is um there are there's uh, a book about it that i used as a source and and a lot of other people kind of um have brought in the french uh, sorry the new french de- <laughs> the new french extremity discussion into a larger uh new european extremity and that's kind of i think where you get films like cachet and funny games and uh the work of lars von trier and i think you can build it out but i think you lose for me the kind of specificity that you have that i really like to talk about in the book but uh the kind of larger wave of european extremity which um, i think we're seeing uh, a lot of political, social, and civil unrest um, happening in Europe right now because of um, a lot of really gross xenophobia and racism and gender-based violence. Um, it's becoming harder to ignore, and these films were about you know t- we're almost ten years out from them now, and they were screaming into the wind saying shit's bad, shit's really really bad uh, for on a multitude of levels. So um, they they are hard to ignore, and I I have tremendous respect for people who. Make Make transgressive films that attempt to illuminate something that we actively try to ignore as a society. And they're being made by uh, talented visual filmmakers. And the difference <clears throat> is It Follows comes out in America, and we all go apeshit for it. But it's literally because it's like one of the only movies that actually has a visual style to it and feels like purposeful. You know, the the guy put a film together in a beautiful way. And then I, like that might be one of the only films that year that feels like that. And in France, if we look at this group of films, they're all shot by people. You know, Gaspar Noé's I Stand Alone, which was the first of these kind of movies I saw, you know, it's shot like a Kubrick film. 
it literally feels like you're watching The Shining just in terms of formal nature of it. So these aren't like shoddy, quick effort horror films, low budge on the sly, let's knock one out. These are being funded probably largely by, you know, government grants and, and investors and Canal Plus and you know, and they look they're real big movies, but they happen to be about horrific things. And I think that's a major difference uh, between what a lot of the stuff getting made here. Well, and just to clarify, some people went crazy over It Follows. Not everyone. That's true. Um, (laughs) uh, Some people think it's terrible. And uh, but uh, to go to the point of you know the kind of formality of it and the caliber of the directors and writers and some of the actors working on them, uh, the the film writer and film programmer who coined the term New French Extremity is a man by the name of James Quant who uh, lives in Toronto as a film writer a film programmer at TIFF he does the cinema tech at TIFF um, and he like wrote about it in, uh, in a couple essays that I quote throughout the book and he hates them like he's actively angry at Bruno Dumas for making 29 Palms because he had all this promise and how could you squander that on this like fucked up movie and uh, so I think there was a lot of derision that these films have faced, both from an international film community and from within the France film community. And that pisses me off to no end because I think as critics and writers, we have an, uh, we have an obligation to interpret films, we have an obligation to write about them. And if we don't like films, that's legit. But to actively write publicly to a director, like something to the effect of, what are you doing, buddy? I, I think that's so gross. I well, and history will prove him wrong in the same way that Ebert went after Blue Velvet because it affected him personally, and later on, it you know it's because it personally shocked him, and then he made this crusade to take it down, and you realize a long time later that he's wrong. You know, he's wrong about the way he chose to speak about that movie. Well, does this mean I have to retract everything that I've said about Friedberg and Seltzer? Yes. History will prove me wrong. Epic movie is actually a brilliant piece of filmmaking. <laughs> I wouldn't know because I haven't seen the motherfucker. Well, I think it's just the dip between saying, like, I don't like those movies. Like, I can say, I don't like it follows. I don't care for it. But I don't want to say that should never be made. No one should ever enjoy it. You're all, like, crazy. That's, I think that's the line I'm talking about here. And uh, that's, that's what angers me. And, in fact, Quant then wrote a follow-up article uh, to his initial one where he named it and derided it and then proceeded to double down on his derision of this movement, calling it, like, uh, I think the quote was something like he called the films desperate artifacts and uh i was just like you do not like these films but it's like he's this like absentee father that hates his creation uh, a bit like frankenstein oddly enough and i don't know it just made me sad for these films that i felt so involved in and i felt so attached to as a viewer and uh so i in this book i just i tried to nudge nudge the uh, seesaw so it's a little bit more even than one way up one way down please invite us back if you do it follows i think that would be a lot of fun <laughs> we, we could get into it i think i'm busy on that night <laughs> oh come on <laughs> you're doing your hair <laughs> her long shoulder length or past hair that's right that yeah. identifies her as who she is exactly when did the book come out it came out uh, earlier this year. It came out, uh, got printed uh, end of May, and I think it officially, quote unquote, launched in July. And it's it's out. It's in the world. Uh, it can be gotten, 
getted at uh, mcfarlandbooks.com, Amazon, um, anything like that. You should be able to find it pretty easily. And it's called Films of the New French Extremity, Visceral Horror, and National Identity. And are you doing a lot of uh, um, events supporting that right now? Uh, we just had the book launch in Toronto uh, about a week and a half ago, which was super fun. I've been doing a lot of interviews, um, some appearances on podcasts like this, uh, checking all the reviews of it. Um, yeah, so my little baby is out in the world, and it's kind of becoming a toddler, and it's growing up, and uh, it's kind of cool to see. So it's doing what it needs to do. Fantastic. All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. you are hearing is an actual radio broadcast. It is the only recording of the event. Roadblocks preventing people from leaving and entering the area. Everybody is under quarantine. Blood! Blood! We still do not have an official version of these events and it's very difficult at this moment to get a fix on what has happened. Oh God! They cut into our signal. Ken? And their, their eyes. He's looking at me. For your safety, please avoid contact with family members and restrain from the following. All terms of endearment. For greater safety, Do not translate this message. Do not translate. Just listen to me. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Pontypool. You know, between episodes on that, Martyrs, and The Shining this month, we're basically just copying what Faculty of Horror has already done. So how does it feel to be a trailblazer of horror podcasts, Alexandra? You know what? It's so great. It's Andrea Sibisati and I, my co-host, we just sit around throwing piles of money at each other. It's it's truly wonderful. It's it's a great time to be us. And uh <laughs> um no, it's just, it's we we love to do what we do and um getting to do a podcast with uh, one of my best friends who I respect so much is um, really amazing. And we started this podcast and we didn't think anyone would care about um, what women and, and two women who identify as feminists had to say about horror. And, um, and we thought maybe, maybe a couple people would care about it. And then a couple people cared about it and then more people cared about it. And uh, it's, it's become, you know, our baby, you know, Andrea and mine's baby. And um I love it. And it's, uh, feels pretty special. Sometimes it feels like a lot of pressure, but, uh, it's good times. I really enjoyed their shining episode. I just listened to that on a, on a drive recently. So it was, it was a really interesting reading. Oh, thanks. And then you just covered, uh, martyrs and another film this month on your show as well. Yeah, we did uh, Fabrice Duwells' uh, Calvaire, which, as Elric uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, is a Belgian film, but uh, Belgian and France have a lot of ties, and it's a French-language film, and um, it's it uh, it was co-financed by France. And we both, Andrew and I both really loved it, and we feel like a lot of people don't quite know it as much, so 
in order to talk about something like Martyrs, we wanted to throw in maybe a lesser known film that we both really dug. So that was a fun one. And that was our September episode. So we do it monthly. And um, yeah, so that was our September episode. And we are getting ready to record our October Halloween episode, which is on horror anthologies. So we're doing Trick or Treat and Creep Show. So I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be a lot of fun. I really appreciated the episodes you did on the Alien series. <laughs> yeah, we I've been wanting to do those for a while and uh those were really fun to record and I'm really glad we did it in two parts and talked about um all four of the films and, and threw in some Alien versus Predator and all of that for good measure. So Elric, how does it feel to uh be on your newly rechristened Shockwave show? Uh well, you know, we're our other show died for about forty minutes. Uh, which was a lot of mourning. Uh, Killer POV, we did 140 episodes uh, of Killer POV, and we loved it. And we did that at a studio, but we were, you know, we were pretty much an independent show. We just showed up and did it, you know, at a professional studio. That was the only thing they kind of gave us. And the new show, two of the co-hosts started working full-time for Blumhouse. So at a certain point, they were kind of told they would have to do a podcast. So we we decided to rebrand it, and uh, I went along, and I'm kind of... I can keep it straight to make sure we're not too kind on Bloomhouse films, and we kind of uh, you know can talk about whatever we want. Uh, it's it's been actually ironically going to a, a real studio in Bloomhouse. We are now an even more independent show, and we have to kind of make it on our own. There wasn't an actual studio to record at, so like you, it's been on a technical level a lot trickier. And we've just been kind of ironing out you know sound issues here and there. And with the last few episodes, have been really solid. And I feel like in a way, we're I think we're at like eighteen or nineteen. We're just getting our footing again and we just had an episode that if you've never heard it i feel like is probably the best episode of the if you include the old show 180 or whatever episodes it's uh it was a full chat with larry cohen for a couple hours just about writing and movies and it becomes very our best episodes just become a conversation you know just become a conversation with someone and it stops being an interview uh, at a certain point it doesn't always work out that way but that one i felt well, you know, had that quality, and it's he's a fascinating, and he just always leaves me feeling excited about uh, cinema and ideas. Yeah, he's quite a raconteur. Yeah, he really is a great storyteller, and he and he and he hasn't lost any of his passion. He still has twenty pitches in his pocket. You know, he's he's just always going. So it's 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 been a lot of fun. It's it, like I said, it's been a, more work than the old show to keep it going, and people probably think it's the opposite. I think the idea that it says Blumhouse presents made people think we suddenly were being paid to do this. It is not the case. This is still a labor of love, and and we're all uh, very much like um, Alexandra uh, and her you know friend who do their show. It's it, we are actually all very close, and we wouldn't do it otherwise. So I know you can get Faculty of Horror at facultyofhorror.com. Where can you get Shockwaves at? Uh, there's probably some Bloomhouse site or something, but the iTunes is still the easiest way. I, I don't plug for them. <laughs> I don't, okay. I don't know what they, they did the re- Martyrs remake, for Christ's sake. <laughs> what can I do? <laughs> it's not my fault. Oh, it sounds like you're torn between two worlds right now. I want to go to Canada and be on their show. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we just finished building our wall. Oh, uh, to keep us in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to Faculty of Horror, to Killer POV, to Shockwaves. Killer POV is still out there for people yeah, to listen yeah. to, yep. correct? All right, good. So we want to make sure that you go back and listen to those. Listen to all of the Faculty of Horror episodes. So you also find links over to iTunes, where you can subscribe to both of these fine podcasts, and you can also rate and review the show show the projection booth the show that you've been listening to so please feel free to do that go on over to projection-booth.com where you can also find a link to patreon where you can donate to the show every donation every rating every review helps the projection booth take over the world cables and the wires we've split the wood and stoked the fires we've lit out town so there is no place for crime to hide our little church is painted white and in the safety of the night we all go quiet as a mouse for the word is out that God is in the house God is in the house God is in the house No cause for worry now God is in the Moral sneaks in the White House Computer geeks in the schoolhouse Drug freaks in the crack house We don't have that stuff here We got a tiny little force Yeah, but we need them, of course For the kittens in the trees And at night we're on our knees As quiet as a mouse folk God is in the house God is in the house God is in the house And no one's left in doubt God is in the house Homos roaming the streets in packs Queer bashers with tire jacks Lesbian counterattacks That stuff is for the big cities Our town is very pretty We have a pretty little square We have a woman for a mayor Our policy is firm but fair Now that God is in the house 
God is in the God is in the house Any day now he'll come out God is in the house Goose-stepping, 12-stepping, teetotalitarianists The tipsy, the reeling, and the drop-down pissed We got no time for that stuff here Zero crime and no fear And we've bred all our kittens white So that you can see them in the night And at night we're on our knees as quiet as a mouse since the word got out from the north down to the south for no one's left in doubt there's no fear about if we all hold hands and very quietly shout hallelujah God is in the house God is in the house, so oh, I wish he would come out. God is in the house. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.